Welcome to this week's Refresh and Restore podcast. We're continuing in our Jesus overall study of the book of Colossians. Today, the passage we are getting into is Colossians 3, 5 through 11. And here's what the word of the Lord says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Greetings, sojourners. I can't speak for you, but it's been an interesting week for me trying to set my mind on Christ. It almost seems like the more I try to make him my focus, one, the more distractions arise, and two, the more opportunities to serve him that I actually notice. It's been a challenge for me, and as bad as this is going to sound, I hope it's been challenging for you too, because it is my hope that our time spent studying the Bible has an actual impact on our actual lives. That being said, today we are continuing farther into Colossians 3. And if you've been on this journey with us in this study, you know that I thoroughly enjoy this epistle, this book of the Bible. I do. I love to read it, to study it, to write about it, to preach from it. But this book can be tough. It's meant to be. Yet it's loving in its toughness. The section we're beginning to look at today, though, I'm not particularly excited to talk about it. Why? It's dealing with sin. Oftentimes, if if asked, church folks would remark that sin is a constant topic in sermons they hear. And it may be in some places. I'm reminded of an episode of the Andy Griffith Show that features Barney Fife sitting right on the front row, sleeping through the sermon of a prestigious visiting preacher. As they're filing out of the church, Aunt B, Andy, and Barney, they stop to talk to their pastor and the visiting preacher. Aunt B says to that visiting preacher, Oh, Dr. Breen, your sermon has such a wonderful lesson for us. Andy says, yes, sir, you really hit the nail right on the head there. Then Barney, who, of course, missed the whole thing, said, yes, sir, that's one subject you just can't talk enough about, sin. The studio audience's laughter follows, as does Andy's embarrassment, but Barney missed the entire sermon. It wasn't about sin, but he expected it to be, and that reveals something, I think, of the nature of people's attitudes toward preaching and studying the Bible, especially within the church. There's a 
hellfire and brimstone view that's left many callous toward talking about sin, in some cases injured by a misuse of talking about sin or ignorant of it at all because some pastors refuse to talk about it at all. When we talk about sin, read about it in the Bible, or listen to sermons from passages that deal with sin, what do we say, understand, or hear about it? If asked, most who are part of a local church would say they believe the Bible is true and what it says is necessary to live, but what about when we get out into the world? What about our lives and the lives of those around us? When the proverbial rubber hits the road, the majority of us would definitely disagree with Barney and feel that we've had enough talking about sin. And so before we get into the meat, really, of our Bible study today, I think we need to have a brief reminder of the presuppositions. So, uh, and presuppositions are basic beliefs that are essential for a particular type of study being conducted. I think we need to be reminded of two that we've stated previously that are necessary to adequately study the Bible. The first presupposition is that the Bible is what it claims to be in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, as well as other passages. The Bible is God's word. It's true. It contains everything that can be known about God and is sufficient to bring us to him. Notice what I did and didn't say there. I did not say the Bible contains God's Word. That's a different view entirely that invites people to say that some parts of the Bible are true and others are open to individual interpretation. The presupposition that the Bible is God's Word and true here is that the Bible is exactly what God intended it to be. It teaches what he wants taught. It means what he meant. It's more than a book. It is, as Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, living and active. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and all of one's life is exposed by it. This leads into the second presupposition that we need here. There's a difference in the lives of those who know Christ, those who are saved and born again, and those who don't, those who are lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. For this, you need to look at passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. Again, as with the first presupposition, notice what I did and didn't say. I didn't say there is supposed to be a difference in the lives of those who know Christ and those who don't, giving the impression that one could be a Christian and not bear fruit. Uh, as usual, check the written version of this Bible study so you can see the scripture references. But to, to back this up, believers do bear fruit. John 15, 4 through 6, Galatians 5, 19 through 24. Read those references and You'll see the Bible is clear and plain on this. The presupposition regarding the life of believers here is that there's a difference between when one was dead in their trespasses and sins and when they walk in newness of life as a new creation. 
Are those who are in Christ perfect? Unfortunately, no. Romans 7, 15 through 25 describes the struggle between the spirit and our sinful flesh. While we understand we're not perfect, though, those who are in Christ grow to be more like him because those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit instead of the things of the flesh. If that sounds like our passage last week, it's, it does. It's very similar, but that comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Seeing it in another passage, it reminds us that setting one's mind should sound familiar because it is directly related. It should remind us of last week's passage because it is the focus of last week's passage. Today, we add to these presuppositions the fact that God has authority over creation, which he himself created. What he intended to be right is right, and what he intended to be wrong is wrong. What he says, uh, look, think back to presupposition one, what he says goes. That means that he has the authority to to declare what sin is. Again, most church folks would say they agree with our presuppositional statements, but what about when the word of God declares an activity you enjoy as sin? What if it was your family, your friends, or your kids, your social media followers? What happens when one of your presuppositions or your worldview is challenged by something you come across in the Bible? Now, I've been quick to say throughout my life and time in ministry that when confronted with this, when confronted with something in the Bible that confronts my life, that my beliefs will change if they're contradictory to God's word. But y'all, that's theory. What about when theory intersects real life? You see, I'm not comfortable writing about sin because I'm worried about offending you. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable because my own heart is exposed and laid bare when I study the word. I'm uncomfortable because I'm confronted with the reality of my own sin. This is why the pre-part of presupposition is extremely important here. These beliefs need to be nailed down before the rubber hits the road. Quickly here, I want us to look at a few people in the Bible who we would call heroes whose beliefs before their trials and tribulations made the difference in how they made it through. You have Joseph, the one with the coat of many colors. He survived his brothers faking his death and selling him into slavery. He survived being slandered by his master's wife and ended up being supposedly forgotten in Pharaoh's dungeon for a long time. Yet he was faithful throughout all those trials because of the beliefs that came before. And he could say to the very brothers whose jealousy set all those terrible events in motions, to the brothers that sold him into slavery that led to him being exalted by Pharaoh down the road. Here's what he said to him in Genesis 15, 19, and 20. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Wow. Think about Job 
Job's worship of God was tested in ways we never hoped to have to experience, or even a fraction of it. God himself described Job as being unlike any other person on earth, as a blameless and upright man. Satan took Job's children. Job's great material wealth was brought to nothing instantaneously. Satan even asked to be able to attack Job's health because if one were to stretch out their hand and touch his bone or his flesh, he, Satan said that he would curse God to his face. In that vein, Satan made it so that there were sores from the tip top of Job's head to the soles of his feet. Yet despite all the loss, all the pain, including three knot-headed friends and a disparaging wife, Job never recanted his faith in God. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as you know the latter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken from their homes, imprisoned, indoctrinated, and made into eunuchs. Their original names spoke of Yahweh, were traded for names proclaiming gods of Babylon. Yet they continued their faith in Babylon as they had done previously. And they saw God strengthen their bodies, answer their prayers, give interpretation to dreams, and stand with them in the midst of the fiery furnace, even shutting the mouths of lions. These aren't meant to convict us of a lack of faith. They're to show us that faith, the faith and beliefs that come before matters when it comes time to live it out. And so for that reason, today's Bible study needs to remind us what the Bible teaches about sin so that we understand why Paul wrote Colossians 3, 5 through 11. So as we think of those verses in our passage today, we're going to look back at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 to remind us how sin works. Most of the time when we talk about sin, we talk about it generically. But Colossians 3, 5 through 11 doesn't leave that as an option. If you or I have ever done anything that is sexually immoral, impure, driven by our own passions and desires for evil, or if we've ever coveted anything, these verses are talking to us. I can't speak for you, but as I wrote this out and studied these verses, the reality of my sin in those categories very clearly came to my mind as in that first list from verse 5, as if that wasn't enough, is expanded in verses 8 and 9 to include anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, or lying. Now, if you're not covered by anything in that first verse, you for sure are in the second list, at least one of the categories. But while we would like to deny our own sinfulness, if asked in church who is a sinner, we'd be quick to remark, of course, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Christ's community, if one of our pastors is preaching and asks the congregation what the wages of sin is, there's a resounding call of death. We know it. But when we talk about it, it's generic. We talk about it, it's hypothetical. What about when it gets personal, like when we consider our own lives compared to those lists in Colossians 3, 5, Colossians 3, 8, and 9? Now, 
when it comes to seeing sin in other people's lives, we are well acquainted with what sin is. It's when it comes to recognizing it in ourselves. We, we become like the hypocrite Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It's as if we have a giant log stuck in our eye, our own unconfessed sin that we are willfully ignorant of while we point out this little speck of sawdust in our brother, sin that we would rather recognize because it belongs to someone else. We know how sin works in the lives of others, but all too often fail to recognize it and especially fail to repent of it in our own lives. It's important for us to know and understand how the Bible talks about sin and let our lives, assuming that we've heard about Christ and were taught in him as the truth is. If we were to describe the workings of one life, we call it the life cycle. I, I think what James 1 13 through 15 says here, kind of clearly defines the cycle of sin, a death cycle from temptation to death. Look at what it says, James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sin. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In that brief passage, we see three things that are necessary for our understanding of sin. First, we see that sin doesn't come from God. To see it, one needs only to look back to the fall in Genesis 3, the, and the first sin ever to be committed. God told Adam what was right. He gave him the idyllic Garden of Eden and every tree in the garden for food except one. God told Adam that to eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would cause him to surely die. Now, there's been a debate as long as there's been a Bible as to who made whom sin, Adam, Eve, or the serpent. The serpent definitely had his role, to be sure. But Adam and Eve each made their own decisions to disobey the commandment of God. But as we said in our presupposition above, God has the right and authority as creator to declare what is right in his creation and to command against going to go against that command is a sin. Adam, who heard the command from God himself, willingly disobeyed. And every one of his descendants from the beginning until the return of Jesus has dealt with the repercussions and struggle, struggles that come from their own sin. The second thing we learn from that passage in James is that we get a picture of what exactly temptation is. Temptation originates in our own desire. James gives a fishing analogy there. Temptation is like a lure attached to fishing line. Fishing lures are designed to look like the most appetizing food for certain types of fish. And when a fish sees the lure moving through the water, it can't help but bite it. Then the hook hidden within the lure is set. 
and it's too late for the fish. They're reeled into the real-life consequences of biting onto the lure. For humans, it's not a shiny lure attached to nearly invisible fishing line, but be assured, there is a lure. It looks like what we desire most, what we want that we either know we shouldn't have or our wants wrapped in a way that we know we shouldn't, but we just can't help but grabbing on to. Now, don't be mistaken. The sins we desire are attractive to us. So often, the struggle one has with sin is because of the great desire they have to commit that sin. Do you think about the time in your own life that you spend thinking or fantasizing about the sin that you want? Not planning to commit the sin, of course. You're, you're just looking. Think about King David. He could have easily made the list of heroes above just as Joseph, Job, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, or Mishael did. They were all sinners, but David gives us a better example of what it looks like to be hooked. David was described as a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14 and Acts 13, 22. But even being a man who's after God's own heart, David was a man. And David's lure was lust and desiring sexual sin. Early on in David's narrative, he married Saul, King Saul's daughter, Michael. Later, he met a woman named Abigail who was described as discerning and beautiful. Abigail helped keep him from making mistakes due to her husband Nabal's treachery, and Nabal's death just happened to coincide with Saul giving Michael to someone else because he was angry with David. But if you look at 2 Samuel 3, 13 and 14, David never stopped considering Michael his wife. Now, that would make sense if he did because he married Abigail at the earliest convenience. But then he married Abigail, uh, was considering himself still married to Michael and married another woman named Ahinoam at the same time. Now, a lot of people want to say, well, the Bible speaks of polygamy. No, the Bible speaks of a lot of things. There are prescriptive and descriptive passages. Prescriptively, God said marriage is to be between a single man and a single woman. Genesis 2, 24 through 25. David, obviously, though, was just wanting what he wanted. He wanted three wives to support his appetites. Now, fast forward to 2 Samuel 11, and we see that David chose to stay home rather than be where he should be at war with his soldiers. He got up on the roof of the palace with a clear view of a naked woman, Bathsheba, wife of Uriah. Then he sent his servants to take her. In 2 Samuel 11:2, listen to this. It says, it happened late one afternoon. What happened? Sin. His looking gave way to taking. David's sin had him hook, line, and sinker. And what he thought would be casual sex, that Second Samuel 11.4 seems to say he thought couldn't possibly result in conception, produced live evidence of their union. That's a good segue into the third thing James 1.13-15 teaches us about sin. 
the fishing analogy gives way to the analogy of conception and birth. That desire that lures in verse 14 is compared to conception, to human biology. Conception is when a man's sperm fertilizes a woman's egg. Life occurs then. Lust doesn't do this. Sex does. Conception is supposed to lead to birth. The baby has a life, but sin is about death. The conception of sinful desire in the mind and heart ultimately leads to committing the sin. It's rarely enough to just enjoy the guilty pleasure of sin once. The behavior grows into a lifestyle. And just as it says in James 1.15, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That life of sin earns, remember, the wages of sin? It earns death. So we wrap up. I want us to consider that when we look at sin, it's tempting to question all of this talk of sin producing death and doubt and whether a good and loving God would allow such, whether he would really let the consequences of sin be death. To that, I would remind you, one, death exists because of sin. And two, what our good and loving God did for sin was to give himself as a sacrifice to bear the death we deserve on the cross, not to ignore it. Now, in our next Bible study, we're going to dive into those specifics of Colossians 3, 5 through 11. We're going to look at the individual sins we need to be putting to death and the things that we need to be taking off. The sheer volume and span of the lists. And remember, there are two, verse 5 and verses 8 and 9. In those lists of sin, they're going to hit us all more than once. It probably won't be enjoyable. It's likely to be uncomfortable. And you may even be angry with me before it's over. I promise you this, I've been mad at myself in studying this as well. I want to give you some homework in the meantime, though. I want you to consider what we've studied regarding our necessary presuppositions and what the Bible teaches regarding sin in passages like James 1, 13 through 15. I want you to meditate on that passage and on Colossians 3, 1 through 11. As you do, consider the Holy Spirit's motives for giving such a passage such a passage to the church at Colossae and to us today. Why would he take the time to tell us here and again and again throughout Scripture what we should be putting to death in us and what we should be taking off as if it were a filthy garment? Does God just not want us to get to do what we want to do? Does he not want us to be happy? Or does he just know more than us? God is the creator. He knows how he designed life to work best. He knows what truly brings happiness, following him. And he knows what brings death and sorrow, sin. He knows how to take lost sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins and make them alive together by grace through faith in Jesus. So I pray that God grants repentance for you where you need it. I pray the same thing for me, and I ask God to help us learn to pray like David, 
who, despite his sinfulness, was a man whose life was in pursuit of God, that we could pray like he does here in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. And with this prayer, I'll close. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.